Matthew 2, 1 through 15. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and came to bow down to him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he went, he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and bow down to him. After listening to the king, they went on their way and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were thrilled out of their minds. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down on their faces and bowed down to him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now when they had left, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I had a privilege when I was a kid. Uh, my, my grandmother was an antique dealer in Philadelphia. And one of the things that she loved to collect was Victorian Christmas ornaments. So when I was a kid, in fact, we had these uh, uh, little, my mom would actually use these, from the 1890s, little gift tags. Like she, I still, as long as a couple of years ago, she would, still, uh, she would still fill out these Victorian gift tags and put them on the presents. Uh, I don't know if they're worth money. They probably are worth money nowadays, but uh, it was so commonplace in our lives. And so the, the Victorians captured the sentimental side of Christmas, like few ever have. I mean, the, the little houses and the little, the, you know, the, the camels and the, the wise men and the baby. The t- oh, it's beautiful stuff. Everything looks gorgeous. It, it's, everything's enhanced and, and lovely and, and false. And false. <laughs> And I, one, of the reasons I, one of the things I'm excited about with this text is, is to get into, and, and in a sense, strip Christmas, as it were, strip it of sentimentality. And I think it's necessary to do that. I think it's, it, I think it's incumbent on us to do it. I think, it, I think it's, it's pressing on us to do it. Um, and it, I try to do it even in the translation. I'll call you a couple of, a couple of things in, in, in order to move towards this and so that we can I think ultimately rescue Christmas. Ultimately rescue 
these stories from the sentimentality that has diluted them and, and robbed them of power. And so uh, take a look here uh, at this. Now, I, I, I included certain details. For example, if you looked at the ESV translation here, which is the common one used today, this word bow down here, it happens to several times, bow down. It says worship in the, in the that is not the word. It is not, it shouldn't be just worship. It's, it can mean worship, but it would be too much to believe that these men would come and worship a baby. It's not, that's, that's absurd. And that's not really what they're there to do anyway. As you kind of unpack this, you'll notice, oh, I did it in the uh, shepherds. Did you notice that when I translated swaddling clothes, what did I call it? Did anybody notice in the earlier translation? I called it a baby blanket. I almost put in baby blankie because that's what we called it. <laughs> Did you guys call it a blankie in, in your family and all? We called it a blankie. And it was a little blankie. And that's all that that Greek word means. But calling it swaddling cloths and a manger, do you know what a manger? I know what a manger is. But it's a feed trough. And a manger is, is a nice way of saying feed trough, right? It's a nice way. It's a, it's, it's, a, it's a prettier way. And it's one that we are kind of happy about. Another place where the translation means something is right here at the end of verse 10. They were thrilled out of their minds. And this funny little, little phrase right here, one of the commentators pointed out that this expression in Greek cannot be captured in English. His best translation, he thought, was thrilled to bits. And so I thought thrilled out of their minds sounded even better. But there is no way to, it is the, one of the most exalted expressions in the New Testament. They were thrilled. And then going to the house, they saw, and I think that's about it. And the translation that I actually worked on. Let me see if there's any other details that I changed and worked on. Uh, now, all right, so let's get more into the text itself. And let's talk about the wise men. Because my concern here, as I said, is rescuing the wise men from the East. Now, what are we going to do with the wise? Are they fact or fantasy? Now, the reason I bring this out right away is because, to me, if you're not asking that question, you're not being very intellectually honest. You're not. I don't care who you are. I don't care if you're a believer or not. How in the world? In fact, there has been a move, there was a movement in intellectual circles to say that this was a midrash. It was a fantasy of a Jewish storytelling that rabbis used to use. Now, I don't ascribe to that. I think that's a false reading of the text. The text never presents itself as fantasy. But we still have to ask this question. The wise men factor fantasy. Now, we live in a time now, it's not like the Victorian age. There has not been a cultural appropriation of Christmas as our native holiday with Christ involved. <laughs> now Christmas is a consumer holiday. Christ is excised from the picture mostly. Uh, you can't take his name out of the name of the, of the time. But, but when I, now we live in a time with a casual dismissal of skeptics. Uh, stars, special bright shining mobile stars. You ever heard of such a thing? What is happening? Well, what, how could Chris? Come on, three, I really? Uh, three wise men, and, and of course one is white, one's black, and one's some indiscriminate racial identity. Serious? Go, go read, go, go look at the pictures. Uh, get real, do you believe in this kind of kid stuff? Well, uh, okay, and I, I want to answer the skeptic. With stars, well, well, just bear with me. If you, some of you have come here aggressively, and thinking, Chris, you make a lot of claims. How, how do you make claims about stars? It is beautiful to observe that there was a comet just a few years around that time. And then a few years before, and these, these times are very hard to establish with any precision. There was, the Chinese astronomers observed a supernova. There also was 
three years before this moment in time, as best we can ascertain, uh, actually, this is kind of interesting, Jupiter and, and uh, Mars, okay. well, two of the planets were in conjunction in, in uh, Pisces. And this is very rare. And it was a portent that the ancient astronomers would have said that portent of Jupiter and Mercury, Mercury is one of those, two of the planets in conjunction in the, in the uh, Pisces constellation meant a great king is coming. Isn't that weird? I mean, that's, that's completely outside of the scriptures. That that portent in an astrological world, if you believe in astrology, would have said a great king is coming. Isn't that strange? Isn't that odd? And if you're a skeptic today, and you come with a certain degree of, of, of intellectual press, hostility, or just real questions about the text, I'm going to ask you, I'm going to invite you, I'm going to want you to suspend some of your disbelief, because there are interesting answers, that, ex that these phenomena have demonstrable connections with reality, as observed by people at the time. So the casual dismissal of skeptics, to me, is, 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 is unfair. And so when you ask me to get real, do you believe in this kind of kid stuff? I wonder, though, if a lot of that rejection of skepticism isn't more of a rejection of the overindulgent imagination of Christians, of the religious. Like this. Justinian, this is the 6th century. Justinian, the emperor, is commissioning this, this particular mosaic to be created. And look, you already have the names. You see there, Balthazar, Melchior, and Gaspar. Did you guys remember those names from, uh, maybe some of you have that, uh, that, that Christian experience, maybe some of you don't. But it already has the names. And by the way, every culture has different names for the wise men. And they're radically different in every culture. <laughs> it's kind of fun. And you see they're carrying gold and frankincense and myrrh. They're dressed in these Eastern outfits. It's supposed to be, supposed to be suggestive of, of Arabia or something, or Persia or something like that. Uh, they're talking about an angels actually inter interacting with them. And uh, there's their star up there that they're following. Here's the problem. Matthew never mentions three. You ever heard of the, 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 the uh, We Three Kings? You remember that song? We Three Kings. Completely false. We don't know there were three. They aren't kings. They don't ride camels. We don't know where they're from. We don't have a list of gifts by name. By the way, there's a tradition, there's a tradition like that Balthazar had one gift, Melchor had another, like that each, each king had a gift, uh, that they're completely anonymous. No claim has been made regarding timing with the shepherds. Have you ever noticed, in order to get you more bang for your visual buck, most, most nativity scenes have what? The shepherds and the magi in conjunction, right? That's, guys, the scriptures never even entertain they happened within any spoke, sp uh, a span of time next to each other. In fact, well, the way that it could have been six months apart, it doesn't matter. And maybe you've heard these sermons, and I, these are wonderful sermons. I don't want to just... <sighs> there are a lot of sermons about, look, look at the kings. The kings come and they bring gold and frankincense and myrrh. And don't you know, don't you have a gift for Jesus? Didn't you, did you bring something for... You need, we all need... That's a moralistic weirdness we're not going to get into today. That's not what this is about. And sometimes people have observed, look, gold is something you give to kings. Interesting note. Uh, in, the, in the Babylonian record, we do know that you were forbidden to meet a king without gold. Whenever you went to the king, you had to present some gold. 
Interesting, interesting fact of, of what it meant to get an audience with the king. Frankincense, as a, it was used in worship. Uh, myrrh, you know, they use these tildes because we don't really know what the specific reference is here. And people build a lot of sermon traction out of this stuff, that there's some sort of secret significance to each item and what it means for you and me and how we're... No, it doesn't. We don't know. Because the scriptures don't, aren't interested in, and, and they never are in fact, it's not even in their character to make up funny references for, for different items in order to make them have more meaning for you in worship. Scripture doesn't do that. It's free of that. I want to rescue the Magi mystery and myth. Because I suspect that most skeptics are rejecting this kind of stuff than they are the actual story. Because the story itself is blessedly naked and simple. It is not, does not have, in fact, it's very obvious that Matthew has absolutely no concern about who these are, when are. He doesn't care who they are. They are anonymous on purpose. There's a lack of information, I think, for the intent of not satisfying the curiosity of religious thrill seekers and story makers, because they're everywhere, but instead to tell us something completely different. In one sense, this entire thing we're doing here of the skeptics and the religious is, I think, a red herring. I think, it's, I think this is the wrong question to ask. In a sense, we have come to a point where many of us are thinking, I'm, re, I'm talking about this because I, I think we're thinking about these questions, even if we don't talk about them. But I think this is a red herring. This misses everything this text is about. What is the mystery of the wise men? What is really going on here? First, we want to interpret. That's the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to build a biblical argument about how to interpret this. Then as, we, as I build the argument, I'm going to come to a conclusion that, look, God's plan and purpose in the wise men was to teach you about how God loves outsiders. And that the God has a plan and a purpose for outsiders. The people who lay outside of the scope of love or the plan and design of communities that love God. What do you do with the people outside who don't fit in, who don't fit the narrative? And what I'm going to claim is, you see, we've been cheated of that. That's the story we need to hear. That's the story this is designed to tell. And we're missing it when we get caught up in, is this fact or fantasy? How can we, how can we differentiate? Um, words from an outsider, for an outsider, should be for an outsider. Should be words for an outsider. But th this, uh, we have words for him now. Um, look here in Numbers 24. This is a, actually a, 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 an actual prophecy by an outsider. His name was Balaam. And he had been hired to curse the people of God, but he couldn't do it. And he actually knew who God was. And he kept trying to because there was a lot of money involved. And he kept trying to over and over again, three times, and he couldn't do it. And then he says these mysterious words. I see him. We doesn't know who he's referring to. But not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob. Now, that's, that's eerie. That's, that's strange. Uh, why do I, I kept running from, darn it. Gifts for outsiders. Then she, uh, from outsiders, I'm far from outsiders. Then she gave the, oh, it is from, words from an outsider, isn't it? I was right. It's from Balaam, that's right. Gifts from, out, I don't even trust my own outline. Gifts from outsiders, uh, 1 Kings 10.10. 10. One of the things that was observed right away is that these kings mimic Sheba. And in fact, does Christ, does anybody know what Christ says he is greater than? He tells, he, Christ actually says this, one greater than Solomon is here when he talks about himself. He identifies himself as greater than Solomon. So in the text, then, and, and don't, 
you may not be familiar with Numbers 24 or King, 1 Kings 10, but these ancient people were. They were very literate in their Bible, and they knew their scriptures well. So we have word from an outsider, gifts from outsiders. What about prophecy of gifts from outside, for outsiders? Angels see they shall bring gold and frankincense. And there, uh, from Sheba shall come. That's the gifts from outsiders. Wise men and stars. And this is where things get kind of interesting to me. I don't, I'm not interested in fanciful interpretations of the Bible. I'm interested in what the Bible says about itself. So do you know where else wise men are referred to in the Bible? In the book of Daniel. Do you know what Daniel was? He was a magi. Who wrote the book of Daniel? Does anybody know? Daniel claims to have written the book of Daniel. Where did he write it? Does anybody know where he wrote it? He wrote it in Babylon. Now, just, just sit with me here for a while. Sounds to me like he left the Bible there when, he moved, when they moved back to the new land. Oh, you hear this. He ruled all the wise men. He was in their boss. He was in charge of all of them. And, and over all the wise men of Babylon. And, uh, and then at the end of Daniel, there's this odd, uh, odd, odd expression, those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Now, Daniel, it's a good chance he left not only Daniel, but the rest of the Pentateuch he would have had with him in Babylon. Maybe even Isaiah, in ba maybe Jeremiah in these are books and these are people who read. Don't get it out of your mind that the ancient world was illiterate. It's as dangerous to be illiterate in the ancient world as it would be today. You needed to know how to read and write just to do commerce. There's all sorts of needs and they were very literate people. And it's, a, it's kind of an illusion that's created by, I don't know why, about the ancient world, uh, ancient world being illiterate. But they would have been reading Daniel. And I suspect that this is enough here at Daniel 12.3 and those other passages, they shall bring gold and frankincense. It's enough to have stimulated enough curiosity. These men were searchers for some sort of wisdom. And they would have gotten a warrant. They would have had a, an excuse. They would have had a license. They would have had, this would have invited them to wonder what's going on. Now, some of you will say to me, Chris, do you really think that you could get that much, you could squeeze out just those few texts, enough, uh, enough traction uh, for the wise men to, to explain the wise men? Um, I don't know. Do, do you know that there's a cults? There are cults in the South Pacific, all across the South Pacific. Yeah, there are cults across the South Pacific on the smallest islands. You know what they're called? They're called John Frum, John Frum cults, and it's spelled F-R-U-M, John Frum. But it actually that's shortened. It's a shortened version of John Frum America. And there are islands where they continue to ask for the God who brought the Americans to bring them all the treasures the Americans had, and they worship, they say, John Frum is going to come back with all of the treasures of America, and they worship him every year. They have a John Frum day where they wave flags, and they talk about the gods who the Americans, who the Americans brought, through whom the Americans brought their blessings. There's an entire cult based on an American GI helping out Southern Pacific Islanders. The reason I give you that a picture is that's only from 1945. <laughs> Do you see how easily you can start taking ideas 
and manufacturing an idea out of it. How easily myth can take hold and legend and you can, it's crazy how quickly that can happen. And it gives you an example. Daniel was written 500 years, 600 years before these events. 600 years for the Babylonian imagination to search the stars and to seek and to try to understand what it was that Daniel talked about in his book and to try to unpack the future. Oh, you better believe it. These things happen so easily and so quickly. It can, make you, it can give you great concern even about the New Testament. But there are answers to that. And then Jesus continues to focus on the outsiders. Look how Jesus even understands himself. I tell you, many will come from east and west. To recline with Abraham. And then Matthew 28, how does it end? What does he do? He sends us into the nations. So even in this book, this, this little story is meant to tell you something about the purpose and plan of God to bring in the outsiders, to bring in those who are not inheritors of promise, to bring in, to reach out to people who don't have a way, to reach out to people, to astrologers from Babylon could have hope of what? Rescue and salvation in Jesus. And it is such a rich idea. And, it, and Christ's own self-awareness preaches it. He knows. It's a part of God's program. He is, as it were, the beginning, the beginning edge of a juggernaut. The beginning, the cutting edge of a juggernaut of salvation and rescue and the kingdom that's coming into history. And he's the cutting edge of it. And, they, and, and, they, and these men come. And I think they're presented to us as hope. Because where, where, you, where were you born? Sidwin, you were born in Singapore. Your salvation, Sidwin, fulfills Christ's words. Many from the east and the west. Praise him. What are you going to do with this but praise him? What are you going to do with this but know him? And I tell you, you're sitting here, and that juggernaut is aimed at you. <laughs> it is. It is a juggernaut of the coming of Christ and all of his love and power. It's, it's, it's aimed right at you right now. What will you do with it? What will we say? And how will you handle it? Um, as I... Uh, the only bad thing about this thing is that the match I fit into the biblical narrative, a Bible left in Babylon, a theology of the stranger, the other, and the alien. And that's what we're developing here. In fact, even in the Ten Commandments, one of the, the commandments include rules about the stranger. Who's the stranger? The alien. It's the outsider coming in. It has always been in God's love and in his heart that he had a design and a purpose for us as the outsider. And this idea of the stranger, he had legal status from Exodus 12, the one law from the native and the stranger. In Leviticus, the moral imperative of love, you shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself. It's part of God's story. Land shall not be sold in perpetuity, for the land is mine, for you are strangers and sojourners with me, says the Lord. The land shall not be sold in perpetuity. Oh, sorry. And if a stranger sojourns among you and would keep the pastor of the Lord, they become participants in redemption, participants in forgiveness, and all the congregation of the people of Israel shall be forgiven, and the stranger who sojourns. And then the New Testament, it, the idea of a stranger identity, the outsider identity, you're no longer, they have a past identity, you were strangers, a new identity, you're no longer strangers, a new identity itself, having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles. We have, a, we have now have, not only does God love strangers, we, be, we understand that strangers inform our new identity. We are now, in a sense, we go to outsiders, God goes out, and we as outsiders now stand in the kingdom. The kingdom happens outside. Uh, and finally, full of possibility to show, to show hospitality to strangers. And Jesus' own self-understanding and mission 
For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. And this is a story he's telling about the surprises that happen in heaven before the judgment seat of God. And then it's finally Hebrews 13, 12 through 13. Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. All right, guys. So uh, the point of this argument so far and in, in, in this and in exposing you to some good reasons for believe some of this stuff and, and getting rid of some of the sentimentality has been just this. I want you to get thrilled out of your mind. I mean, I want, to get, I want to know how to get there. Because it seems to me awfully odd that three men, well, I mean, I, I can't, see, I keep doing it. I keep doing it. I keep restating these myths, you see. I think that's how entrenched they are in my own mind. Uh, either that or I'm just an idiot. But, uh, but how, this to me is, is the trick here. How do we get thrilled? I want to get, I want to get, you, get this. And Melody, I'm not saying you're not thrilled yet. But... You're not as thrilled as three men who didn't know squat, and you know so much more, huh? I said three again. Yes, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. The wise, I did it again. Thank you. I'm, I'm perpetuating the myths here. Um, I'm part of the problem, not the solution, apparently. Uh, but what's happening there? Why do they have more joy than you or I do? Why are they more captivated? Why are they more excited? Why are they this alive with joy and worship. Why are they so crazy happy? I want that. I want that for you. I want that for the church today. Now, and I suspect we're on our way when we now realize that, that the Christmas story, its sentimentality is beautiful. I, don't get me wrong. I love all the trinkets. I love all that stuff. I, it's in my house. I love it. I'm a sucker for it. But that's not my salvation. That's not my hope. And it's not my real joy. I want to be thrilled to bits, thrilled out of our minds. I'll know why. God loves outsiders. That is just crazy. God loves the people who are outside, who are rejected, who are, who are dismissed, who are out, out, out. And this, this idea that there is this love has always been his plan and his purpose to expand and to, and to get out. Yeah. It's free, and it's alive, and it's for us. Jesus went outside himself. You know, it's funny. The scriptures make a big deal of this. Christ, is not, Christ isn't executed inside the city. He is executed outside. And, and that has all this significance. There were sacrifices that were actually killed outside. Because, and they were burned outside. Because outside is where the weeping and gnashing of teeth is. Outside is where the stranger, outside is death. In ancient nomadic cultures, you need other people to survive. And if you are alone and you're outside, you know what happens? You die. You have no shelter. You have no, you have no hope. And so the idea that Jesus went outside, he goes outside on the cross. He goes outside of love. Think about this. He goes outside his own father's love. He goes outside of life itself. He goes outside completely, doesn't he? He goes outside eternally, as it were, in his love. And he dies on a cross for all the outsiders out there with him. All the outsiders who feel locked out of God's promise or locked out because of their sin or locked out because they weren't there in the right place or because they haven't known the right things or they haven't done the right things. And maybe, oh, are we going to get locked out? No, no, not if this Jesus has anything to say about it. Something very beautiful happens here. 
something very beautiful. It's the, the kingdom's so different. You know, I, I don't know how you in other cultures, when you, how many, I don't know how many people who even experience this here, a few of you have, where you come to America, say, and you see all of our sentimentality. You see all of our Christmas trappings and all of the, all the pretty little trinkets and the pretty stuff. And, and I, I wonder what that, I wonder what that communicates about it. Just kind of what that says. But here's the problem with that. You know, you and me, Gina, we could talk about that and have joy in it. And, and even you probably like the same things I do and everything, right? But that just locks other people out. See, if you're not part of our culture, that's a lockout for you. You don't get why we're excited. You don't get our sentimentality. It doesn't breathe new life into you from when you were a child. And so in a lot of ways, the Christmas story has become so Christmasized and so sentimentalized, it really tells everybody they're an outsider. Who feels like they fit into the nativity and most of its depictions? You're not dressed like a shepherd. You're not dressed like a wise man. What? Oh, the little drummer boy. Actually, the little drummer boy is one of my favorites. I, I, if you want, to go for Christ, you want to go for Christian myths, that's one of my favorites. <laughs> oh, why not? Because he's the little drummer. He has nothing to bring, and he's the total outsider. And that's the picture right there. And it's beautiful. But Jesus went outside. So his death on the cross is a death for you. If you're outside looking into God's promises and love, if you're outside and you don't know how to get in, Christ is beckoning you. And he's saying, I, go, I went to the place of death and isolation. I went outside to get you. <laughs> I've been an outsider my whole life. I cannot believe that he went outside to get people like me. <laughs> Amen? Praise him. Come to him. Give your life to him. Give everything to him. I'm serious. Give it all. Why not? Why are you holding on to it? Praise him. <laughs> he is beyond all praise. He is greater <laughs> than we ever imagined. Second, Jesus went outside. Praise him. We need it all to be this real. Hallmark faith won't cut it. You see, the reason I want to strip out the sentimentality is because I want life to be pre- I want Christ to be present with his love and his purposes inside the dry dullness and aridity of my heart. <laughs> And the lonely days where you're working and you don't understand things and you don't understand why your wife or your husband, you don't understand what's going on in your world, you don't understand why you can't progress faster and why you keep falling in the same ways and why life seems so ordinary or boring or pedantic or dull or lonely. It's so lonely out there. This is real. If you read these stories and you strip out all the extras, these are stories that being on the run, being homeless, Praise him. <laughs> you see, that means that the Christmas story really is for the guy sleeping outside in the door. It really is for him. Because you see, and if he doesn't hear it for him, because we're busy in our consumerism and our beautiful tinsel and all the different things we love, if we can't bring it to him, then we are lying to him. We have lied to this generation. Christmas is about Christ coming to the shepherds. And uh, by the way, I didn't even bring up the shepherds. They're outsiders too, but they're not outsiders like in another culture. They're outsiders inside their culture because to be a shepherd was to be scum. But who gets invited by angels? Choirs of angels. The scum do. Praise him. <laughs> you see, there's, I need it to be this real. Hallmark faith won't cut it. It just won't because I don't have Hallmark problems. <laughs> Three, God is 
has his eye on the stranger, the outsider and the misfit. I love this. I love this. I love the idea that all these texts were unfolding and that these wise men and however it is they get there and the mystery can't be solved because we don't have enough information. We don't have enough data. But if we can solve it, God has his eye on the stranger. He's watching. You see, even Deepak's here. He's, uh, he has an eye on the stranger. He has an eye on the misfit. Uh, what have you done? We have trained ourselves to not see the things that disturb us, haven't we? How have you ever noticed how, how gifted you are at not seeing the bum or not seeing the, the homeless guy or not, or not seeing the poor? Or not, I was sitting at, they're all around us. Do you have eyes to see it? We're sitting at, uh, we have this happy hour thing that for, for reaching out to businessmen and it's downtown in the city every Wednesday at 4.30. It's called St. Francis Happy Hour. You're all invited. Come on by and see us. It's fun. But we're sitting there. It's on an alleyway called Belden. Sometimes Nellie walks by because you work right near there on 500 California. Um, uh, I'm sitting there one day, and I see a family, an Asian family, walk by. And I'm like, what are they? And they're obviously, the kids have those school backpacks, three kids, two parents. And they walk up to one of the doors right in the alleyway. And I'm sitting there with some of the most successful men in the city having cocktails. And 20 yards from us, they're going to a little gate. I'm watching them like, what are they doing here? And they're going in. So I walk down the alley. I've been in that alley for years. I never looked up. And I look up, and there's, there's laundry hanging out. You know what that tells me? The poor are invisibly living all around us. I want God's, I want God's eyes on the street. Uh, when you come in here on the Sunday morning, have new eyes. Think for the stranger, the outsider who comes in, who doesn't know where to go, who doesn't understand what we do, who thinks your pastor's a nut job. You know, doesn't have eyes for them and help them interpret what's going on around them. Why? Well, eyes for the stranger. I'm excited. I'm excited about something here in, the, in, in this facility. Because we have a security guard out front, we can start inviting people in. We can because we have the controls right now in place. And we can start inviting people off the street. And so we can start doing things like this here and being that light, being that presence. What about a big plan for a big kingdom and it's getting bigger? I, the reason I included this is that we are on a trajectory as a church. And you know what that trajectory is? To become a club. We are always on that trajectory. All churches are on that trajectory. And what I'm talking about is a natural, sinful trajectory of the heart, which always wants to settle for comfort and peace together, right? And so we could, we could, we could say this. Uh, Adele, could you stand up for a second? I'll do a Sidwin. I won't pick on you. Sidwin, you stand up. I'll pick on Sidwin. Now, Sid, we can enjoy our, our friendship, and we could say that our friendship is godly because of all we share about Jesus. Uh, you're going to get baptized at some point when you repent, and, and all these things that are happening, Right? But that, that we're, we could be tempted to say we have a mature relationship based on how we feel together. I don't think that's a biblical measure. Do you know what's a biblical measure of our intimacy and whether it's godly? Gina, can you stand up? It's, imagine Gina is the stranger and she walks up. How does Gina feel in front of our intimacy? Does our intimacy tell Gina she doesn't belong, she doesn't know the language, she doesn't have the shibboleth, she doesn't know the tinsel, she doesn't get the hallmark moment, so forget her? Or is our intimacy such that it welcomes her in? You see the difference between the two? One's a club, thank you guys. One's a club, and one 
is the kingdom. <laughs> They're completely different. They feel different. They act differently. They arrive differently in this world. They can look the same for a while. Well, churches look the same because you just walk in, you don't know a church from other church. You don't know why it's there or what's happening. But trust me when I say this, that they're all, they're, these churches can look the same, but they're going in completely different directions. I want to be a part of the kingdom with getting bigger because the Holy Spirit's in it and our intimacy invites, invites and beckons and calls. That's something else. That's what God creates. And finally, going outside, a hospitality that seeks, invites, and waits. And this is where, you know, it's funny. The, 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 the shepherds wind up there because the angels come and corral them. And, and the wise men come there, and we have no idea how or why or how they get there. We can see a little bit in the Old Testament, maybe some suggestions that drive in. We can create a plausibility structure that makes sense of it, at least. But we still don't know. We still don't know. But I'm interested now as we, we're being sent out. The way Christ sends out at the end of Matthew. The way Matthew begins, where the nations come to Christ, what does Christ do at the end? Sending out. That true hospitality for us will, will be how people feel when they're here and how we are going to engage, to invite, and to be an invitation in all of our lives to those outside. I mean, a heart that goes outside to beckon in. The heart that's intentional. That's, and, and look, I'm glad that the way we're working on all the different parts and pieces, you know, one of the reasons we have, you know, footnotes here is for people who don't know what we're talking about, right? This is supposed to make people feel more comfortable. I've heard people say it just makes us, it makes it look like a, a dissertation, but uh, that's not, that's, but that wasn't the point. Maybe, maybe it'll encourage people that we're thinking people too. I don't know. But these, these are, these are, these are meant to be way baby, baby talk, you see? Are you doing the baby talk of evangelism, getting out there? And I mean, with hospitality, I think hospitality is the most powerful evangelism there is. Because it's practical love, shown in practical ways. Um, so, uh, that's what I'm excited about right now. I can't remember how I wanted to wrap this up now. I got so, I got so excited about Christmas. Um, I want to end with a story. Uh, there's some ministries that are happening right now in the city. They're kind of they're not ministries. They're started by, by secular people. One's called Huckleberry. It's an amazing group. Uh, Tal's on the board of it. And she's been working on that. And but you know they, these these secular groups they have they, they have places we don't meet them in our thinking. But I, I think it's important to to support people who are doing the best they can in their in their worldview, and not to be too critical of of things I don't agree with. But then another there was another outreach. It was for, for against bullying. I'd never seen this before. We were at this dinner, an elaborate place downtown. And, an, and they're having this wild auction. And I, for the life of me, cannot remember the name of the organization right now. But they're against bullying. And they had all these testimonies of, of kids getting up and talking about being outsiders in their community. And what their whole point is, is to, is to eliminate the outsiders in high school. And man, that would have been a dream. How about you? <laughs> If anybody had done that for me, and well, actually, I was such an outsider, I wouldn't even, I probably wouldn't have responded to that. But, but, but who knows, right? It's an interesting idea. But one of the most things that captivated me was this at our table. I got introduced to him. I can't remember his name now, but um, a very, very attractive couple. And but I quickly found out they're leading. They're leading this thing. One of the leaders of this of this out of this outreach. And he gets up. 
And he's so impassioned for kids who are being bullied. And I'm watching him. And all of a sudden I realize, and I'm watching him, that I, I feel, I can feel the, the passion because I know, I remember getting bullied. I was beat up every day for years. There was one group, that, I don't know why they, they thought I was worth it, but I was an easy, easy target, I guess. And you watched him and you realized what he was doing was he was reaching into his own experiences and just had nothing but passionate love to rescue people who are being bullied and outsiders. It was, it was impressive. And he started signing up and he was leading in giving 10,000. I mean, he was just like, you're watching and this is a, hundreds of people and people started giving and there's all this response. And, and I, don't, you, you get it, don't you? I get it in his heart. I simply want to say to you today, Air Christmas, I don't want to be outdone by a secular group in love for outsiders. Do you? We are quintessentially the outsiders with our Savior outside who went outside for us. We long to be insiders, all of us. I know we all want to be inside, but give up that longing. It's not worth it. And let's join him outside the camp. Let's join him as he joined us. And let's become a place. Let's become a people who are steeply inviting in the intimate way Jesus loves us and the intimate way we love each other. Amen? Praise him. Let's pray. Father, I want to say thanks to you. Thank you so much for your love. Why would you go to the outside to, to find people like us? But it's just like you. I, you go to the most unlikely places. You go to the broken pile of pottery to find the bowls you want, the vessels you want. You go to the broken ash heap of the world to find the treasures that you desire. So, Father, we're living in one of those, one of those uh, places now. Come and find treasures for us. Come and find us and help us to find others. Father, I, would lo I just love, I love you and I thank you that you love outsiders so much. I praise you for the love these men showed, that they were so thrilled. And Holy Spirit, come and thrill us with your love. In Jesus' name, amen. Outside and inside, outside and inside. Are you inside or are you outside? Are you in or are you out? Well, that's constantly a question, isn't it? You know, in God's kingdom, there is an inside and outside, but it doesn't look like how you think it looks. Many of us think that outside and inside are lines of demarcation established by people's goodness. But on the night he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus Christ took bread and broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Take and eat. And in the same way, he also took a cup of wine, saying, this is my blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. Take and drink. You know, uh, he told us as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we will proclaim his death until he comes. He said he would not eat this again with us until we eat, until we eat and drink it anew in his Father's kingdom. Hmm. All right. Uh, in and out, in and out. Are you in or are you out? Let me, uh, let me uh, draw a, a line in the sand here and tell you that you're not allowed to come to this table. You are out of the, outside the promises of God. But remember, this is the kingdom of God, so it's weird. It's backwards. Only sinners get to come to the table. Only outsiders get to come in. Isn't that wonderful? 
But there's a, there's, a, there's a companion message. If you think you're a good woman or a good man, then you're not worthy of my Father's kingdom. You're outside, even though you think you're inside. Jesus came to save sinners, not good people. Praise him. Aren't you, you thrilled out of your mind? I, I hope so. I hope so. Finally, if you're a skeptic and you find my claims outrageous or, or, or uh, unsubstantiated by my, my thoughts today, don't worry, I'll, I'll, I'll substantiate them later for you if you want. But I pray as a skeptic, my hope is as a skeptic, that you will watch and you will grow restless and envious to know God the way, the way that we do. And that's what I'm praying for. I'm going to ask you, Christian, what do you... What do you believe? Believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Come.